Occupation. Stand-up philosopher. What? Stand-up philosopher. I coalesce the vapor of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension. Oh, a bullshit artist. Welcome to the 16th encounter of the Bullshit Artists. I'm Rory Verado here with Jack Crittenden. What's up, Jack? What's going on in your world? Nothing, Rory. There is no world. <laughs> there is no There world. is no me. There is no you. There is no world. It's all I, an illusion. I agree. Uh, things are great. Things couldn't be better. Good, good. Excellent. We had been talking before briefly about the fact that your family has been stricken with covid and that fortunately everybody seems to be that's a uh, lie <laughs> that's, that's a lie. lie there is no covid <laughs> that's the part hoax. of the that's part of the false illusion world as well yes everybody in our household uh, with the exception of me has had a bout of covid well you uh, had one months ago i had one months not ago currently. Yeah. not not the current uh, strain but yes everybody seems to be doing fine my wife was the last to get it. She's recovering very well. I mean, her symptoms, are, she described it as the flu. In fact, she insisted she had the flu <laughs> and didn't have COVID. Wishful I said, thinking. <laughs> I said, you know, it's a virus like the flu. It's worse than the <laughs> flu, but it's like the flu. So she right. took a test and she was positive. So, um, but yes, her symptoms were mild. Everybody's symptoms were mild. So we're on the mend. Everyone seems fine. That's good. Glad to hear that. And it does um, that sort of the fact that she thought it was the flu and the fact that for many people, Omicron in particular presents as sort of a mild cold or maybe a slight flu or whatever, as opposed to something more extreme sort of raises uh, some questions or at least touches on a topic that I wanted to think about with you, which is this sort of ongoing conversation that's been happening, or if we want to characterize it as a debate, I don't know, regarding what we might think of as misinformation uh, in the case of COVID. So how do we speak about publicly uh, not only the science, but also public policy regarding COVID? And what, if anything, can we do about those whom we deem as perhaps spreading dangerous misinformation. So somewhat topically, there's been this ongoing feud between Neil Young and Spotify, right? right. Regarding Joe Rogan's podcast. And Neil Young essentially issued an ultimatum and said, look, motherfuckers, either you take down this misinformation or I'm pulling my music from your platform. And of course, Spotify, having spent supposedly $100 million to, uh, you know, to lure Rogan onto their platform a couple of years ago, was never going to side with Neil Young um, in this case. But there's been this outcry in some areas online, at least that I've seen, and maybe in conventional media too, um, that you know, raises the specter of censorship here. And I've seen this also on the left or people ostensibly 
who consider themselves to be on the left. It's not just folks on the right who want the ability to talk about, uh, you know, anti-vaccine, anti-mask uh, positions freely. It's also people on the so-called left, people who portray themselves as being on the left, who feel like this type of thing somehow infringes on principles of free speech. So that's, I just wanted to put that out there and frame it in that way and see, you know, first of all, if you have any thoughts about that generally, and then we can perhaps dig into it a little bit more. You know, my kind of position is that this is really not about censorship, um, but it may be, maybe it is something, you know, but I don't quite know, know it, what. It's something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you see what I, because I mean, it's not like First Amendment, it's not the government, like silencing, right. you right. know. It is censorship. It's a form of censorship, but, mm. and I don't know that it makes it more palatable to identify the players as uh, private individuals. And the, the concern about the First Amendment is just as you were suggesting at the end of your comment, it's about uh, what role the government plays in silencing citizens. This has nothing to do with the government. Mm. Right. I mean, this is Spotify, as far as I know, is a private enterprise. Neil Young is a is a private artist and Joe Rogan is a private citizen who has a podcast. Right. right? I mean, if Neil Young decides. Uh, I can't countenance being on a platform that allows Joe Rogan to have his show, which is essentially what he's saying. Right. Right. Then I have to withdraw from the platform. Uh, OK, fine. <laughs> I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with it at, uh, at any level. Because here's the concern I have. Joe Rogan has how many shows? One uh, a week? He's done over 1,500 episodes of the podcast, I think. And it seems like he puts at least one out a week. Okay, 1,500 shows. Not every topic is full of, of misinformation. Right. Maybe everything he says about COVID is a lie <laughs> and everything is misinformation. I don't know. I don't listen mm. to Joe Rogan, except on occasion when he has somebody on I want to hear. And right. that's probably once every few months. But the idea that you would say, I don't want Joe Rogan to be able to use your platform, to be supported by your platform. It seems to me to be a, a gross misjudgment. Mm. It, but I understand, I understand it's easier to say, well, maybe it's not easier to say if, if Neil Young had said to Spotify and maybe he did, because I don't know the details and you may be able to fill those in for me. If Neil Young had said, you should not broadcast any Joe Rogan program where he is spewing clear misinformation about COVID. That would mean that Spotify would then have to identify the shows of Joe Rogan that they don't want to sponsor versus those that they do. Now, is that possible to do? Yeah, I think that's possible to do. Is it any better? I don't know. It seems to me to be better. I mean, what we don't want people to do is outright lie about this disease. Now, I understand the complication here, which is that they don't think they're lying. They think that there is this 
opposite side that has equally strong scientific evidence right. to support the view that masks don't work, vaccines are dangerous, there are properties in the vaccines that we ought not to have. Uh, maybe there's some merit in that. I, I don't know. I know there is some there is some discrepancy, not discrepancy. There is some debate about about masks. Yeah. It seems to me on the level of common sense, if you have a mask, <laughs> a mask that filters certain properties, right. that it's, it can be effective. I, I, okay. It seems right. obvious. <laughs> yes, it seems obvious to me. But maybe there's some merit there. Maybe there's some countervailing science. But, I, but I'll come back to my, my point and get you a reaction. Mm. Uh, I don't know that Joe Rogan should be deplatformed to core as opposed to saying, because he has shows on that. I, that when I listen, I don't think of them as out of bounds or crazy right. or full of misinformation or disinformation. So it's not every show. It's the, apparently the shows about COVID. Okay. Well, I say, you know, you gotta, you gotta censor those. So you would, you would be in favor of some sort of like moderation, like a, a person who uh, in the, like the internet sense of moderation, a moderator, uh, somebody who uh, examines and listens to these and like maybe either cuts those sections out or bleeps them or whatever in order to cut out that misinformation. Yeah, yeah. I, well, what, what would probably happen would be that Spotify or a company would go to uh, its affiliate would go to Joe Rogan, let's use Joe Rogan and say, sorry, Joe, we're not going to, we're not going to permit, we're not going to broadcast any of your shows about COVID. Well, he might say that's ridiculous because there is a lot of good information there. Right. And they'd say, yes, but from our point of view, there's a lot of bad information. So either we edit at our discretion, your show, which I think he would reject, or we simply don't broadcast your shows about a certain topic, i.e. COVID, mm. to which I think he would object. And then he'd say, well, if you're not going to do that show, it's one of my shows, it's integral to who I am. I'm not going to have any of my shows on your platform. I think that's where it would eventually end up. Mm. And so we'd be right back where we are. Right. It's either Rogan or it's Neil Young. Yeah, it's a little, it seems like it's, there's, there's no... I don't know. There's no sort of middle ground to be reached. That's part of my concern with this is like, on the one hand, I used to listen to Joe Rogan's podcast quite a bit several years ago before COVID came along. Uh, you know, just the guests that I found interesting, Cornell West, Michael Pollan, you know, lots of interesting yeah. folks have been yeah. on there. And, um, but, and so I think there's a real significance to having a popular sort of space for, um, I don't want to say consequence-free airing of views and opinions, but something near to that, where in other words, like you don't have the same pressures and the same, what we might think of as like selection biases that you see in the popular media, mainstream media, like the, the kinds of people who are on CNN, for example, typically come from an upper class background, a certain educational background, et cetera, et cetera. Their views are in some uh, sense of, you know, some, some conformity 
And of course, beyond that, corporate media, oftentimes, as we both know, and I'm sure many of our listeners know, serves a propaganda function for the purpose of constructing certain narratives that serve the interests of the people who profit from uh, from things being that way, including the owners of those media entities themselves. So in other words, I'm, I'm highly sympathetic to that kind of thing. Well, I mean, that's part of why we have our podcast, I, in my view, at least from my end, is to be able to share perspectives that are not often um, heard in mainstream places. But at the same time, then how... I don't know, how do we deal with someone like Rogan, for example, who is so overwhelmingly popular and is saying things like to give a recent example that occurred that sort of brought this to my attention a couple of weeks ago was that he had a guest on whose name I'm forgetting because I'm not familiar with the guy, but he seemed like a relatively smart guy. And Rogan made the claim that the vaccines have dangerous side effects, which, you know, is True, they can have some dangerous side effects, but the one that he chose to point out was that the, they can cause myocarditis, um, which is, I guess, a heart uh, issue. Yeah. And the guest said, yes, that is the case. But the reality is that anyone who would get myocarditis from the vaccine would have also gotten it from COVID because the method of action is the result of the spike protein in the vaccine, which mimics the COVID spike protein. In other words, not only would they have gotten it from COVID if they had contracted COVID, he said, but it, they would also be more likely to get it and to get it to a worse degree. Um, and in, I had actually done that research myself because supposedly this myocarditis issue affects like men under 50. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so I had, I, I knew that that was true, that what this guy was saying was true. And Rogan pushed back vociferously against it. Um, and then I think later he did, after the podcast, maybe tweet something out. And once he was conclusively shown to be wrong and, and sort of admit that that was the case. But so my part of my concern here is that what that does is that kind of thing has the effect of validating a whole host, I think, of beliefs and perspectives that then sort of cumulatively become very problematic and result in this generalized sort of anti-vax disposition, let's say, where you have a figure like Rogan with an influence that he has sort of, like I say, validating this type of thing. And how do you combat that? We don't necessarily want to silence him or kick him off a platform but there also does not seem to be any meaningful way of um sort of engaging with that in the moment like or on the podcast itself such that we could ch change minds right yeah. Yeah. so i don't know it just seems like an impasse to me that that is becoming increasingly problematic and is reinforcing this polarization that we're seeing but i mean i just want to add also that it's not only from that sort of side right like i also saw i think a Ras rasmussen rasmussen poll 
uh, recently of Democrats that showed that they support like uh, like enormous amounts of registered Democrats support these extremely draconian measures against people who are anti-vax, like even up to placing them in internment camps, essentially, and and, and confiscating their children, um, like big percentages, like 30 percent, 50 percent plus of registered Democrats supporting these types of things. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, all of that has just been swirling in my mind and sort of uh, and bringing me down a bit because I don't know how to how we will in sort of the civic sphere or whatever, generally, how we how we reach a point where we can navigate and adjudicate this stuff. Or are we just always now going to have at least two sort of alternative realities, both of which have their own sort of quirks and nuances and flaws, um, and neither of which actually reflects what we might think of as being sort of the true reality. I don't know. Maybe you disagree with that with that characterization that I just gave, but well, you, there was a lot in there, so I'm not sure which characterization I'm disagreeing with, or I, might disagree uh, I mean with. the two sort of spheres, and that can never be integrated or overcome. I guess as a result of these uh, this polarization in dialogue, I, there are definitely appear to be two realities when you can narrow down the topics. So the broadest perspective is this anti-science perspective, mm. which then leads to, I think, maybe an even broader perspective. Another one, let, let me back up. So there are individual issues we can look at. For example, we were talking about COVID, that that's uh, overblown. It's no worse than the flu. People are lying about the number of deaths. However you want to categorize it, it's not that big a deal. Okay, there's there's that that issue, but then that broadens out into a larger issue, which this is this anti-science issue, which is that climate change itself is a hoax, or it's not as bad as people are saying. It's not it's not worsened by human interaction with the planet. Okay, that then broadens out into an an, an even larger issue, which is this anti-elite anti-expertise position that mm. it's not just about science it goes beyond that the experts don't have an opinion that's any better than yours um, or they are in cahoots with uh, corporations and they're just selling a product they're selling themselves to these corporations because they want the money now if you combine those three perspectives you have a very different view of reality from the one that I hold to. Mm. But that isn't to say that there are people within science who are saying stupid things. Right. 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 You, just because you attach a PhD or an MD to the end of their names doesn't make them necessarily credible. No, I think okay. as you and I both agree, some of the dumbest people we've ever met have been, yeah. <laughs> you know, PhDs from Ivy League schools or whatever. Yeah. And, and people who, who taught you and taught me. Exactly. Um, so it, 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 it always seems to be the case that this comes down to your individual judgment and upon what do you base your judgments? It, so you, the hope is that you're trying to base it on reasons and evidence. 
Okay, now where it becomes murky is going back to Joe Rogan is that he clearly has marshaled some some evidence of his own articles mm-hmm. and people who have certain viewpoints. What I am heartened to hear is that he backed off a position when he discovered that he was wrong about myocarditis, right? The causes of it, and the I agree related I, to I, the vaccine. I thought That's that a good was sign. Good. Yeah, Rogan had on this is a, maybe I don't know a couple of years ago there was a a documentary. My my uh, sons are vegan. Mm. Well, two of the three are vegan, and one is a pescatorian or wherever the hell that is. He eats fish. <laughs> um, but there was a very good documentary on about veganism and the uh, veganism and, a, and athletes. And they were interviewing athletes who had gone vegan, you know, in powerlifting or various kinds of sports uh, and talking about their diets and were they getting enough protein and could they build muscle and could they uh, relate their veganism to, to performance. Right. Uh, and my my son turned me on to this this documentary, and it was a very good documentary. Well, Joe Rogan had on a I don't want to call him a professor, although he may be someone who was an expert in nutrition and things who who was debunking all of it. You can't get enough protein. You can't get protein from the sources they were citing. There are various drawbacks to it. And so Joe Joe Rogan was going along with this. But then, to Rogan's credit, he had on the uh, filmmaker who made the documentary. Mm. who had the science and this guy simply presented the science and it turned out that this and he had on with the producer of the documentary this uh expert who was disagreeing with the documentary so rogan Mm. had both of them on simultaneously ah yes well the director filmmaker director of the documentary just destroyed this guy because it turns out he didn't know the science at all Wow. And Rogan, Rogan backed up his position. He said, well, wow, I'm, I'm convinced by what you're presenting, that your document, documentary was accurate and that this guy is off base. Okay, mm. so I credit Joe Rogan with changing his mind. But it ap- appears from what I'm hearing, and again, I don't know the details, that he's really dug in on, the, on his COVID position. Yes. And is willing to put out this misinformation. Okay, who judges it to be? to be misinformation who's making those judgments well it's it's people within the community scientific community broadcast community (laughs) uh regular folks off the street like us right we're saying we have read and we have heard x this guy is preaching y these two things don't meet is it the case that somebody is wrong and I think the answer clearly is yes. Yeah. We, we have empirical <laughs> data that shows that receiving the vaccine has benefits and is not deadly and that harmful. There have been 8.9 billion doses given worldwide. Mm. Now, it might be that there's a grand conspiracy among all media all corporations, all governments to lie about the numbers of people who have died and have been infected with COVID. But this is the problem I have with these conspiracy theories. It requires people not to, not to tell the truth, not to come clean. I, I think that's- How do you mean? 
Well, at some point, the oh. whole, for the conspiracy to hold together, it means that everybody must be sworn to secrecy somehow, either by threats or or persuasion, mm. which gets us into the issue of power, which is another topic maybe we can talk about today or someday, yes. about what power is. Um, but people don't function that way. The mafia, which is far, far smaller than the moon landing, for example, right. can't hold together. People who turn against the mob, whistleblowers against the mob, know what the consequences are going to be. Right. Your entire life has to change. Your identity has to change. You have to go into hiding or you have to become a completely different person. Okay, so the mafia can't hold its families together. And yet we think that there could be a worldwide conspiracy about COVID. Right? Yeah. It's going to hold together with no one coming forward and saying, you know, I worked for uh, Spotify and they were telling me that that they would fire me and kill my family if I <laughs> revealed to them that I was part of this conspiracy. I, it's just, it just doesn't hold together for me. So now to back off from the crazy. Um, yeah. So I, but I, I think the problem is, well, it, we don't back off from the crazy. There are two realities and one seems way crazier than another because one does not seem grounded in reasons and evidence. Mm. And one does. Yeah. So what, so are they irreconcilable? Absolutely, they're irreconcilable. And, and what, what will happen? Well, here's the, the best case scenario. The two realities don't disappear because we know that there are conspiracy theories, some, some of which you buy into, <laughs> such as 9-11. Yeah. Um, and the conspiracy theories about the moon landing or about um, lizard people living in the center of the earth, right? Or all, all kinds of things. Uh, I think those are all crazy because mm. I think the evidence runs against them. And I hold to my view, the conspiracies fall apart because it's, impo it's impossible to hold all of these people to, to the story. Yeah. Uh, okay, so what will happen is the two realities will continue the conspiracies won't disappear, but they'll be driven underground. So like cockroaches, these people could come out to feed on the, the pestilential poisons that are out there that, 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 that are pulling them out of the cupboards. Uh, the, the heavy boots of reality, of what I think is the fact-based, science-based reality will smack them around and they'll go run back into their into the woodwork. But they don't disappear. Two realities won't disappear. One will become dominant. Right mm. now, the, what's frightening is that we, we they're not necessarily co-equal, but one is very powerful. Both are very powerful and they're clashing. Right. So that's that's where I think we are. Yeah, I think that's interesting. That's and that's part of my concern, broader concern with this whole thing is is that final point you made there about the sort of the clash. <clears throat> you know, it's it's uh, often the case that there are competing sort of discourses in a culture or a society, but they, although they may come into conflict, they also coexist. Like that's sort of the nature of the of the system, so to speak. But it does seem that given the, the way in which just the historical moment that we're at, especially 
as exacerbated by COVID and climate change and other things, but more viscerally and immediately COVID right now. Um, it's, it's bringing these two sort of realms of ideals, so to speak, into uh, irreconcilable confrontation. And so, as you say, perhaps one is going to have to prevail over the other. And I'm not sure what that ultimately looks like. And does it, in fact, manifest as, you know, something like an armed conflict or, you know, something of that nature, but given the political crises that have been happening, you know, let's just say since September 11th to the present and especially with Donald Trump's presidency, it certainly seems to me and feels to me, and probably I think maybe it does to you too, that a lot of these things are sort of coalescing and seem to be uh, approaching something like an historical turning point. Again, how that's going to man manifest is an open question. But I think, you know, I was just listening to Timothy Snyder on Bill Maher recently. Timothy Snyder, for those who don't know, the Yale historian and expert on sort of fascism, basically, and authoritarianism. And he was saying to Maher, you know, giving a little bit of his vision of where he thinks things might be headed politically in the coming couple of years. And his view, which I mostly share, is that we do seem to be approaching something like a breaking point. All the pieces are in place. The sort of scenario just has to be presented in which they are all activated such that this conflict bursts out into, into the open, I guess, which could be something like the certification of electors after the 2024 presidential election, which is what also sparked the whole January 6th thing, right? Except this time, uh, Snyder was saying it might go in the other direction and produce perhaps more chaos and violence. Um, at any rate, that's just, I think these things are, are deeply linked in ways that are hard to, uh, in, so, in some ways, tease out or parse out, but at the same time seem so blindingly obvious when we step back to that level of abstraction that we were just discussing with sort of two different realms or whatever, in which yeah. people uh, receive and process the information that they take to be true. And so I come back to Rogan, where it's like that sort of media ecosphere, so to speak. Although Rogan personally may step outside of it at times, as he did when he acknowledged that he was wrong about the myocarditis issue, nevertheless, he and many others like him have systematically cultivated this sort of realm or sphere where those types of claims are frequently made and not corrected and instead reinforced and validated by others who are making the same or similar claims such that they just sort of you know repeat repeat the lie long enough that it becomes the truth for them Right. And then at the same time, it sort of bumps up against or 
is almost, I guess I could say again, validated from externally from the fact that in the other mainstream realm, if we want to say Democrats or whatever, they also have uh, false or misguided or mistaken beliefs, like some of those that I alluded to from that Rasmussen poll, things that we might disagree with or at least recognize as <laughs> uh, uh, being a bit aggressive, the idea of confiscating children and internment camps and whatever, but that in also that also in some ways are, I think, based on faulty uh, understandings of reality. Like for example, the question of vaccine mandates, the nature of this COVID vaccine, or really the nature of the disease itself, so far as I understand it, because it is a coronavirus and because coronaviruses tend to um, have what they call animal reservoirs, I, th I think, right? So in other words, they affect non-human species. They, and so they can, even if we manage to uh, treat or in some sense vaccinate against the strains that are affecting humans, it can jump back and forth between animals and mutate such that it it can come back and break through uh, the vaccines that are in place for humans. So in other words, this disease will never be eradicated in the way that say polio was. The vaccine is not like a perfect protection in that sense. But I think uh, in the at least common sense understandings of vaccination and these sort of underlie the motivation for things like vaccine mandates and what seem to be endless series of boosters. It's like, we have to get vaccinated and that's how we're going to truly eradicate this pandemic or this, de this disease. But if that's not the case, then there, for, for genuine scientific reasons, then there's a real question that arises when we consider the pharmaceutical industry's influence on government, for example. There are real questions that arise about the validity of uh, continued mandates and, and even shifting goals for vaccine mandates. So first it was the original two series of shots, uh, sequence of two shots, then adding the booster, perhaps another booster perhaps how many boosters and at what point, if what I have been saying is true, do we recognize that this policy is being pursued for something other than strictly scientific or public health related reasons? And how do we have that conversation without seeming like we are anti-vaxxers? Do you see where I'm, yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Well, for me, I think I would start with the consequences of the actions. So what do we know about the vaccine at this point? We know that it's not a guarantee you won't contract COVID. And it's not a guarantee that if you do contract COVID, even if you're vaccinated, that you won't be seriously ill. There seems to be very strong evidence that you're not going to be deathly ill, and you're not going to need to be hospitalized. So that, that's not a guarantee either, but that, 
the, the odds seem very good. So the point of the vaccine is to mitigate the results of contracting the disease. And it may help somewhat in helping you avoid contracting it to begin with. But we know, for example, the Omicron variant is highly transmissible. And apparently there's another, there is a variant of that variant, the B2 variant, oh, really? that, is also, that is even more transmissible, but, but even milder, mm. which is the good news. Right. Okay. So we know that, that that seems to be the case with vaccines. And I think it's also the case that there are two kinds of immunities. There's natural immunity and there's vaccine immunity. Natural immunity comes from having contracted the disease and defeating it. And the vaccine immunity comes from the vaccine. And then you combine the two, you should have a pretty strong immunological reaction. Okay. Your question is, okay, then, then one further point about that. Then apparently the booster the, the two initial vaccinations and now the booster are very effective against Omicron and all of its variants. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> you raised the question, at what point do we begin to see this slide from the medical benefits of the vaccine to a move by the pharmaceutical industry to take advantage of people to create greater profits for them? Right, because there are many people who think that that's already the case and that it yeah. has been from the start. So I, I think my re response would be just what I said initially, which is let's look, look at the consequences. So apparently in Israel, they are giving four, they're, they're now giving a fourth shot, the second booster. Mm -hmm. I have not seen any data on what the results of that have been. Are these people with four shots uh, getting very mild cases, so it's like the sniffles. Are they not getting contracting the vac the the disease at all? I, I just don't know what the result has been, but that for me is would be what I would look at. Because like you, I would not put it past the pharmaceutical industry to use COVID as an excuse to manufacture vaccines and boosters and pills and whatever else they they manufacture to tell us that this is gonna be even greater protection when in fact it adds no protection at all. But they can, scientists can determine that, right? They're independent scientists who are gonna look at that. And I'm, you know, I, 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 my default position is to look at what the epidemiologists are saying. Sure, yeah. Now, maybe they're, maybe they've got, they've got skin in the game because they are paid consultants to Pfizer. I, I don't really know, but yeah. I think some of them are pr pretty legit scientists. At least a couple that I follow seem pretty legit to me because they're willing to take on the criticisms that you're raising and, and confront those. Um, but with COVID in particular, it may very well come down to uh, a seasonal booster that we receive the way we do a flu shot. Now, you don't have to take a flu shot. I, I only started taking a flu shot a couple of years ago because now, you know, I'm decrepit and old. Uh, so I think it, it helps my odds, but I didn't take it beforehand because I thought, well, I'll let my immune system take care of the flu. There's, I'm pretty sure I'm not gonna die. Now, uh, some people exaggerate the number of deaths. They say, well, the flu kills hundreds of thousands of people a year. No, it doesn't. In this country, the worst episode was, I think it killed 60,000 people in one year. Mm. COVID within a year killed over 750,000 people. Right. That, that, in this country, that makes it quite different. 
So I would be willing to take a booster uh, in the view that it was having some effect. But if the studies come back, non-pharmaceutically related studies come back showing that it isn't effective beyond the third or fourth booster, well, then what's the point? <laughs> right. But, it, but you have to have trust in somebody. And I'm not saying faith. I'm saying trust in somebody. You've got to find some body of people who have some expertise in this area and trust them. So for example, as I said, I'm, I will trust epidemiologists who, who do this as a li- for a living. And are I will, independent, presumably. And are, are independent. Yeah. Uh, I will trust virologists who have studied this and are, who are affiliated with hospitals, but not necessarily with pharmaceutical companies. Mm. But I'm not going to take the word of any MD, of Dr. Oz, for example, who's a thoracic surgeon, I think, and now suddenly he's an expert on COVID. No, that doesn't work that way Mm. for me. Uh, And I don't know who Joe Rogan has on as his experts, but just because they have an MD doesn't mean anything to me. No. So so, uh, it brings us back to the larger point, which is you have to be careful in looking at the experts you draw from, right? And where you get your information, but it doesn't lead me to be anti-expert in my positions that all experts are liars or all experts are in the throes of, of the, the capital corporate system. Mm. I, don't, I don't believe that. Yeah. I think, I think a lot are, and you have to be careful of looking where studies and reports and viewpoints come from. I don't know that it, that answered the question. Oh, the, I guess we're coming back to the reality clashing, right? The two realities clashing. I, I am not uh, as pessimistic about this as maybe Tim Snyder is. Mm. Because here, here's how I project into the next 10 years. Uh, and it doesn't even have to be 10 years. It might just be the next year. <laughs> Things on the right are, are going to begin to fray Mm. the the rug is going to start coming apart uh i think and and there is a time element here because it it seems likely to me that the republicans will will take back the 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 house in 2022 this year yeah i agree which will put an end to the uh the one six committee and its investigation. So that's got to come out pretty soon. I think that's going to be devastating because they're, they're going to have firsthand accounts mm. from people who are behind the scenes and telling us what was going on, what happened there. I think the conspiracy, that conspiracy to overthrow the U.S. government will be revealed. Yeah. That's going to hurt Trump. I hope so. And his <laughs> ilk. Well, I mean, all those lunatics that, that are, are out there foisting this, this, the big lie. Right. Election fraud lie. I think that's going to start to unravel. Trump himself is going to be uh, Trump himself is, is going to be uh, indicted, if not for uh, civil offenses. Well, if not for criminal offenses, then civil offenses. That's already coming. That's already happening. I mean, the, wow. he's in serious trouble. Right. You're much more optimistic on that front than me. I, I, I would like to hear maybe at some point, why you think it's coming with such certainty. But- well, because they're, they're, the investigation in, in the state of New York mm. about Trump's tax returns, uh, it's, it's open and closed. <laughs> I mean, this is information we had a year ago 
from the investigative reports at the New York Times. But about, why does that? I, I maybe that's true, and it probably is. I guess. Do you think it's really going to result in the indictment of a former president? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, it, yeah. It's going to indict everybody in the Trump Corporation, in the Trump Organization. Yeah, they're and, all going to be indicted. That's interesting. Now it's going to, but as I said, it it has not yet changed paths. Right now, it's on. It's a civil matter mm. where he will be bankrupted. I mean, there are reports that he has uh, totally exaggerated his assets. Yeah, that's been the case for years, it seems. Yeah, and we know we, we think that's probably pretty true. We know he's grotesquely in debt. Right. Uh, and now, now, I don't know how he's going to pay that off, but, <clears throat> but, the, but the, the civil suit brought by the state of New York is going to bankrupt the, the Trump organization. The criminal indictment is already going on or, or soon to go on in Georgia. Mm. And his attempt to to bribe or threaten, coerce uh, Rathenberger, the Secretary of State there, yeah, in Georgia to overturn the election. Right. Okay, so that's a criminal complaint. Um, the first one, the civil bankrupting him, means he can no longer say, "I'm rich. I'm a rich guy. I know how to run businesses, and therefore I know how to run the country." That's gone. Right. The criminal element will completely destroy his network. And I think people will be discredited. Now, that doesn't mean that the network will, will fall apart. I think they'll continue trying to spread the lies, but I think it's just going to weaken and weaken and weaken. Mm. It's like losing oxygen. Right? <laughs> uh, it's not going to happen all at once. It's going to be a very slow process, but, it, the, but the balloon is deflating. So I think... So I don't think we're on the verge of civil war. I think the the other in the other side of this is that militias did come together mm. on January sixth, the Oath Keepers, and uh, you know the skinheads, <laughs> and um, the the Boogaloo Boys, and these other organizations did come together, uh, but they are so incompetent in how they run their outfits that bringing you know, stupid people together doesn't make them smarter. No. <laughs> right. When they're disorganized, poorly organized and organized around the wrong principles, it doesn't suddenly make them enlightened. I no. think it's, I think they're just going to compete with one another. Now they will be dangerous. And I think there'll be uh, outcroppings of violent actions. And it doesn't, wouldn't take much to bring the country to its knees. If you attacked, say the electrical grid. Right. Um, there might be attacks like that, but I just think that the uh, FBI and other forces will begin to focus on these people. Now, this isn't to discount that there are elements within the FBI, within law enforcement writ large, that are in sympathy with these with these views. Absolutely. I mean, there was that report about 15 years ago that uh, I think by the Department of Homeland Security that showed that warned that perhaps the single most dangerous faction in American society was the, pr the presence of white supremacist um, sort of shadow organizations within law enforcement. Yeah. Um, so, and that, you know, that hasn't changed. I think it's probably just gotten worse. I think that's probably gotten worse. Yeah. And I think Trump has brought out, as I said, Trump has brought out the human cockroaches, right? They, they, <laughs> right. They've come out of the woodwork. To their king. Yeah. Well, because they feel emboldened. 
to be yes. able to be a public about their their crazy views, which I think enhances this notion that you were talking about, about the two realities mm. and that how dangerous it is. I, I don't discount the, the danger. I just think that there, what's happening is there's a slow erosion now of their foundation. Uh, yeah. With, without Trump, it's, I think it's going to be difficult for people like DeSantis to run on this on the big lie. I think the big lie is going to collapse. Mm. Uh, we, we see it in Arizona, where you know there was, there was a faux audit yeah. That even even the fake audit didn't turn up evidence that overturned the election. Right. The fake audit, the auditor said Biden won the election. And didn't they, they were, what didn't they have to cancel it or something, that audit to like on their own terms? I feel like I remember reading something where like the machinery was flawed or something and they well, didn't even they, accept their own results or yeah, everything you know. they did was flawed. There was a 93-page report, or maybe it wasn't quite that long, that came out from the Republicans who were in charge of Maricopa County elections, who mm. completely debunked every point raised <laughs> by the f- fake auditors. Right, right. Now, the That's problem is, was. yeah, the, the president of the Senate in Arizona, the state Senate in Arizona, mm. is the one who initiated this, this audit and continues to say that there are election problems, that there weren't any. Right. Um, Okay, so you've got the series of bills in Arizona that are the same as other Republican-controlled states. They're trying to, you know, tighten election laws to make to make elections more honest. Well, I mean, it's all preposterous nonsense. Um, but but some of that will continue. Some of that will go through. Some of it will fall apart. Uh, but I, I think eventually the whole the foundation of it is the big lie, and that's going to collapse. I think that's going to collapse. So I'm not as worried about it. I, I think the two realities will continue to exist, mm. but I think one will be diminished in its influence and the other will be uh, uh, elevated. That's it interesting. Doesn't, it, it doesn't remove the problems that you cited, the, the problems that you and I share, that this country is controlled by corporations. Right. Corporations are controlled by the desire for money, that people who have money have, have tremendous and disproportionate influence in our elections and in our government and in our policies. And this is holding aside the whole issue about the military industrial complex, which seems so quaint now, when you think back to to Eisenhower's uh, farewell address, when he warned the country about the perils of the military industrial complex. Well, now it's been multiplied. It's not just the military industrial complex, it's the industrial industrial complex. It's the it's a Wall Street industrial complex. It's, it's the convergence of all of these factors into who controls the country. Yeah, it's the corporatocracy or, you know, as, yeah. Wallen, as Wallen wrote, the inverted totalitarian system, right? Where instead of government under traditional totalitarianism, government dominates the corporations and forces them to do what it wants. Now corporations dominate the government such that they are the government for all intents and purposes. And we know there's plenty of um, empirical research to support that as well, not just uh, theorizing by Wolin and others. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that's part of it too. And part of why I personally find some of these conversations so difficult to have with various people is because there are at least those two levels that are operating simultaneously. There's the sort of the shell game of conventional party politics, which you and I both know is essentially a complete charade. You know, it's uh, not this, not that there aren't significant differences between the parties, 
but they're they're both playing for the same playing the game for the same reasons i think because they are both corporate parties controlled by and beholden to uh their corporate donors right especially as you just mentioned the military industrial complex so there are shades of differences between them um but ultimately there are the things that unite them are in my view a lot more dangerous and threatening um than the things that separate them in the final analysis and so it can be very difficult, I find, to have that conversation with people who only see things through the lens of sort of a quote-unquote left-right political party dichotomy right. without understanding and recognizing the deeper level of analysis that, that adheres to both of these parties and their discourses and their goals, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, the, the, the mean, and that's where things like <clears throat> it gets, I think, even more complicated because you have, for example, people on the on essentially the right now conservative discourse where the notion of the deep state so-called has has gained a lot of currency. Um, but it's, in my view, many times completely sort of. Uh, like a cartoonish version of what the real deep state, the permanent state, as Jeffrey Sachs calls it, the military industrial complex, if you like, that really does exist. But the deep state that like, you know, runs a pedophilia ring under a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C., you know, that's that is controlled by Hillary Clinton personally or something, as the as the, the QAnon people alleged um that that's not r- real <laughs> in the same right. in the same way but of course then that itself is complicated by the uh you know Epstein situation for example so all of these threads i and kind of overlap in ways that are so difficult to disentangle uh in in conversation with people including people on the left like i've had many numerous conversations and encounters with in real life and online with with leftists who are concerned about for example vaccine mandates they think it's authoritarian overreach and they have this sort of knee jerk reaction to what they see as an authoritarian move by the government that's motivated strictly by the pharmaceutical industrial complex which in a very real sense does control numerous politicians in Congress, et cetera, et cetera, um, to mandate these vaccines. And so, okay, how do we say that, that that recognition has merit and is of value while at the same time not having the knee-jerk reaction of saying, well, I'm not going to get vaccinated. I resist these vaccines because they're being mandated instead of recognizing and saying, you know, I'm opposed to these mandates, but I also can see the, the valid science and understand the germ theory of disease because I'm not a fucking medieval peasant, you know? Um, and so I, I'm going to get the vaccine and at the same time, I'm going to speak out against overreach by pharmaceutical corporations, et cetera, et cetera. That for me has been something that I've been so disheartened to see by some people with whom I formerly agreed 
or thought I agreed on many topics, but who now have had a very, what I would characterize as a reactionary response to things like the vaccines or even this issue of so-called censorship with that we were talking about with Neil Young and others, where it's like they find themselves, I think, falling into the camp with regressive reactionary people whom they typically would oppose because they have not thought through, I think, the sort of nuances and complexities of the way in which multiple things can sort of hold and be true at the same time. And nevertheless, we want to take an action that might seem like it aligns with authoritarianism, but we're taking it independently for the right reasons. So for example, just to sort of put a, a finer point on this, I've, I've tried to use this example to get through to people, drawing from Robert Paul Wolf, right? His, his um, In Defense of Anarchism that you introduced me to years ago, where he makes the point that the morally autonomous person makes always in the final analysis, makes his or her decisions under his or her own sort of choice and authority, even with those decisions sort of um, from the point of external observation or from a superficial perspective, align with directives or commands that are given by a figure whose authority we reject. So he gives the example of a boat's captain on a sinking ship. And it may be the case that the captain is issuing orders, get into the lifeboats now. You know, I'm commanding everyone on the ship to get into the lifeboat now. But he says the morally autonomous person is only going to use that as a piece of evidence in making his or her own decision about whether or not to get into the lifeboat. And he or she may indeed decide to get into the lifeboat, but not because they're being commanded to do so but because they've evaluated the situation and on their sort of own terms have decided, yes, it is the correct course of action now to get into the lifeboat. I feel very similar about vaccines. It's not the case that I do much of anything because the government or a fucking cop or whatever tells me to. I do it because I'm evaluating the situation as a morally autonomous agent and reaching a certain decision that I think is the correct one just because it happens to align with uh, the, you know, the dictates of a power or an authority whose uh, legitimacy I may not recognize does not therefore mean that I'm suddenly a bootlicker, you know, going, uh, going along with these commands. Does that, do you, do you see that perspective like that? I've, I've, I've had that argument essentially with a lot of people on the left who have resisted the vaccines for those types of reasons. And it seems I cannot get through to them about it. And it's really disheartening. Yeah, I can imagine that it is. When you are in conversation with, with people who reject the vaccine mandate because they consider it government overreach, what's the next step for them? What do they imagine is gonna happen next? You mean in terms of what what the next what the government's going to do to extend their overreach? Yeah, so they they got a toehold now, right? Because the sheep are taking the the vaccine mandated by the government. What's the next step? What what, what will the government do next? Do they and, talk about that? Yeah, some of them do, and I mean it seems to vary from like sort of wild 
um, conspiracy theorizing of the type that you were criticizing. And I mean, like I, I mean, we've talked a little bit about conspiracy theories before, and I do adhere to some beliefs or perspectives that are often framed as being conspiracy theories. But for me, not all conspiracy theories are created equal. And I think I might have mentioned to you that even the very term conspiracy theory was popularized by the CIA for the express purpose of discrediting critical scrutiny of the JFK assassination, which I'm not sure what your position is, but the idea of a single single bullet, single shooter or whatever found by the Warren Commission is just so prima facie ridiculous to me um, that uh, it sort of, I think, highlights uh, the likelihood that the CIA would try to discredit criticism in this fashion. But that's an aside. Um, these people, I think, fear essentially a slippery slope into um, continued and escalating forms of social control that are linked directly to um, what some people think have called the sort of the biomedical complex, the pharmaceutical industries, et cetera. So you have to, I mean, and there, there is a certain reality to this here in New York City, for example, we do have an app on our phones that's called like the New York City um, Excelsior Pass or whatever, where you upload your vaccine um, proof and you literally have to show that at the entrance point to restaurants and other businesses in order to uh, be allowed to come in. And so people think that's going to escalate and you'll have to you know, continue to get these boosters or maybe have to get other forms of medical treatments that you might not agree with or whatever in order to essentially participate in society. So I think they fear that they're, they will essentially be stripped of their, the privileges of citizenship if they do not comply with the, what they expect to be increasingly um, sort of draconian and frequent uh, medical interventions of this nature. That seems to be the general thrust of what these people fear. And I, and I mean, there's some merit to that, I think, but I don't know. What do you, what's, what's the merit? Take? Some merit, I think in the sense, just as I mentioned that this has been implemented. Now that doesn't mean, because as we know, slippery slope is a fallacy, right? It doesn't mean that just because something has happened, something else is gonna happen or that it's predestined or whatever. But when we think about the nature of the surveillance state and how things have changed since, again, let's say September 11th, and we find increasing, I think, uh, increasing forms of, um, you know, non, I'm going to say non-consensual uh, government intrusion and surveillance into people's lives, the NSA and whatever, I think uh, it's reasonable to believe that these things could continue to develop in problematic ways. But at the same time, for me, that does not mean coming back to the question of like more fundamental stuff, the germ theory of disease, a basic scientific understanding of right. vaccines, et cetera. That doesn't mean that you then have this knee-jerk reaction of, okay, I'm not gonna get vaccinated, uh, blah, 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 just because it may be the case that these types of problems may present later on. To me, the solution is speak out about them, organize against them, 
uh, as they arise and as they may seem to be arising, but don't shoot yourself in the foot. Or as my grandmother would, would used to say, you know, cut off your nose to spite your face. Um, because not only are you, I think, hurting yourself, but you're having a very real, in the, in the case of the vaccine, you're having a very real social impact that is like sadistic or sociopathic, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> so, yeah. And for me, for me, it comes back to what I said earlier, which is evaluate the evidence. What's the evidence? Okay, I, I understand that that there are establishments in New York City and elsewhere in the country that want you to show proof of your vaccination, the vaccination passport. Okay. If you uh, look young and you go into a bar, you have to show your license. Exactly. Uh, okay. I, I don't consider that to be overreached by the state. I mean, maybe it's overreached by the bar. I don't know, or the restaurant. But I, I think it's completely overblown. And I, I agree with you. As evidence begins to unfold, then you need to consider taking some kind of action if you think this is government overreach. I don't think a health mandate is government overreach. We didn't seem to have this problem with any of the other vaccinations that are required by law. Measles or, or whatever to go measles, to college. Measles, rubella, yeah. yellow yeah. fever, polio, mumps. I mean, it, it, where's the outrage? Where was the outrage for government overreach? Where was the outrage that, oh my God, this mandate is going to require us to have a mandate. You know, we're going to have to show our papers now. I, I, I just think right. it's completely overblown. Go, go with the evidence. What's the evidence that that is happening? Right. Uh, and even with, and it's true of all conspiracies. What's the conspiracy? You know, what's holding it together? What's the motivation for it? Why is it happening? What's the evidence that it's actually occurring? Whether it's the JFK assassination or the moon landing, look at the evidence. The evidence in those two seem very different to me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I agree. I do think we landed on the moon. <laughs> yes, I believe we landed, yeah. landed on the moon. I think there, there's pretty strong evidence that we've been there. Yes. Uh, yeah, and if you you can just ask, although I think he's dead now, I guess, but Buzz, there's a famous clip of Buzz Aldrin punching someone. Did you ever see that? Some no. guy comes up to him, and you know this is Buzz, Aldrin was old at this point. You know this was not that he's long. He's still ago. he's still alive. I is think he still, he's still alive? alive? I think he is. Yeah. Okay, he's got to be pushing ninety or something. But at any rate, he was you know seventies, eighties or something when this happened, and somebody came up to him and got up all up in his face and was you know spouting conspiracy theories about the moon landing. And Aldrin just hauls off and, and clocks him and, and no punishment came to Buzz. It was Good. basically it like, shouldn't. we didn't see anything, you know. I mean, I guess my response to people, okay, you, you don't think we landed on the moon. <clears throat> Big deal. Do you think the earth is flat? Right. Right. Do you think? Okay. Uh, so, yeah, for me, it's the evidence. What's the evidence for any of this, for all of this? Uh, and then you say, well, how do you how do you believe the evidence? And we come back to where we were before. There has to be some foundation, either in work you're doing on your own mm -hmm. or in the people you trust who are presenting uh, studies. I mean, I, you, yes, you, you can disbelieve any study. Oh, that's not true. The numbers are faked. The research there, there was no control group. Uh, it, 
fine. You can debunk anything you want. But at some point, for example, when you're a COVID debunker, that it's not that bad, it's just the flu. You don't need a vaccine. You're not going to get it. You're going to be fine. And you suddenly get COVID and it's a really bad case. Where do these people go? Mm. They don't go to their church and hold the Bible as they die. They race to the hospital and say, save me. Right. But at the same time, many of them try to tell the hospital how to treat them. You know, give me ivermectin or whatever, you know. Which is fine. But most of these people, uh, (laughs) well, not all these people go to the hospital. Most of them will then take the treatment that's given to them. But all of a sudden, the anti-science people are all all into science and medicine. Oh, now I'm back. Yes, it's a hoax. But Mm. but now I want the the best medical treatment you can give me. I mean, you you just have to look... (laughs) You look at the evidence and look for some notion of consistency. Yes. I'm glad you pointed that out, actually, because I think it raises another sort of aspect or angle on this that we haven't delved into too much yet, which is like the, you know, we've talked about the um, larger political forces at play uh, at the sort of social and collective level. But then there's also, I think, very important um sort of psychological, individual and personal psychological factors that are happening in aggregate, right? But are nevertheless um, individual. So like, for example, with the what the, you were just saying about people who have rejected um, the vaccines and have been so forceful in their positions on this, what is it about them psychologically and personally that results in the same sort of sequence of events once their little reality or you know alternate reality bubble is pierced and they do in fact contract mm. the illness and it is presenting a, a life-threatening situation to them and they go and seek the tr- very treatment that they had been denying rejecting etc cetera, etc cetera. You know, I just I'm, I'm thinking here of sort of like the ego dynamics and right. just the narcissism, the pathological or what, you know, Eric Fromm calls the malignant narcissism that we saw on display with Trump, in my view. And I know you've written about this, too, that Trump as the cult leader. Right. Right. And he is this malignant personality, malignant narcissist that was magnified and um sort of accepted in a way that, uh, you know, as an abusive person, we at the personal level, what many of us would not accept that kind of person in our lives, right? You would cut that person out of your life if you encountered them in, in your own individual personal life. And nevertheless, we were forced to accept this person, the, per, the mere presence of this person for such a long time and in such a significant capacity, you know, and, and it, as you mentioned earlier, it sort of activated all the people who share this personality type um, and brought them out of the woodwork and sort of normalized that kind of thing. And so I really think like, that's what you described, like what, 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 what could be more abusive than that kind of thing to gaslight about something so significant, the pandemic, uh, its danger, et cetera, and then to flip on a dime and to demand from the very people, you know, whom you had been uh, denigrating that they provide you 
with the treatment that you had said was bullshit, you know, in order to save your life. So I don't know. That's just, I'm just sort of thinking that through right now off the top of my head, but it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, you know, the context, the, the connections between what Adorno wrote about as the authoritarian personality and his study of fascism, right? Through that lens. Yeah. Yeah. And then Trump himself. Right. Yeah. There, uh, I, I find it difficult to, to generalize too much about, about um, personality. So I don't, I, I don't discount the idea that there might be an authoritarian personality, mm-hmm. but I think there's so many elements and you were kind of alluding to this that compose our personalities that it's difficult to say, uh, well, here is the uh, commander of my personality. It's this authoritarian streak I have. I, I think people are attracted to movements and to individuals for different reasons at different times at different levels. Mm. So if you look at Trump, I, I cannot imagine a more odious character uh, running for political office. And I think we were stunned at every step when he was successful at the primaries and then got the nomination and then won the election. Uh, because as you said, how, how could it be that we would turn over so much authority to this kind of person? Right. Well, I think there are uh, different explanations for why people were attracted to Trump. I mean, there's some who are anti-Semites. There's some who are racists. And, and this, this was uh, an opportunity for them mm. to come out. Some who are anti-immigrant, you know, nativists. Uh, but there are also people who, were, who are always looking for some group to belong to, which is the cult element. But I think the, the broadest one, and it really it sort of shakes any confidence that I might have had in the nature of the characters running for political office, that it doesn't really matter who's saying it. What matters is what is being said. So Trump is clearly a phony on virtually every level every manifest level, he's not successful. He's not rich. Uh, he, he's not tough. He's not smart. What, whatever it is he projects, it, it's the opposite. Right? The one thing he did was that this phony, fake, rich businessman pretended that he was anti-elitist which is completely false because everything about his life has been catering to the elite and that he was concerned about the little guy. Right. The forgotten man, the forgotten man. He he wouldn't, he wouldn't hang out with these people, his rallies. You couldn't pay him enough money to put those people on his jet and fly around with him. There's no, he, he disdains these people. Right. They're subhuman to him, just like most everybody else. Yeah. they, they, Yeah. Except for apparently his family member in the ultra rich. Right. Um, But he 
spoke to them about hearing their anti-elitist views and their concerns about their own well-being. Mm. And they bought it and they continue to buy it when there was absolutely no evidence that he did anything for these people or ever has. No. All he's done is he's built millions of dollars from people that he contracted to do business with him. Anyway, right. but, but he appealed to them. He appealed to them because they were, they were being heard. Somebody's concerned about, about uh, my losing my job. It, they're concerned about the wrong people. But, yeah. you know, but somebody's concerned about that. Somebody's concerned about my health care. Trump promised that he was going to have the least expensive, best health care in the world, never delivered on anything. I mean, everything was right. a lie. We know it was a lie. Yeah, he basically said he supported Medicare for all at one point in 2016 in yeah. the campaign. So. He said, I'm going to repeal Obamacare, but I'm going to replace it with something that's less expensive and way better. Right. That, that was a complete lie. There was nothing, <laughs> nothing even on the table. No Republican had anything like that. No, of course not. But, but so the appeal, so that's why I was saying it doesn't really matter who is saying it. It's what's being said. Mm. Mm -hmm. So so if you could combine some sincerity and message with the message itself, and that would be somebody like Bernie. Right. Then, then I think you have a really good candidate. I agree. I mean, and I think we've talked a little bit about that before. It's like 2016 Bernie you know, the way that he presented himself and the things that he said, you know, connected, I think, with many people who then went on ultimately to support Trump, um, yeah. actually, yeah. you know, but, but, there was but again, crossover. I come back to my position. Look at the evidence. What is the evidence that Bernie Sanders has ever had any interest in the very policies he was proposing? Right. Well, his whole life is based, based on that. That's exactly. what he's done. There's a whole, yeah, his literally his entire life. That's his history. Yeah. What is the evidence that Trump had any interest in any of the policies he was proposing? None, zero, right. not, there's no evidence. Just look at the evidence, follow the evidence. Exactly. Right. But as we know, that's not how many people and probably even most people operate in the realm of politics. They make usually something like an emotional connection yeah. to the messenger so you're emphasizing the message and I emphasizing the message and I think you're right about that but it but there is a point at which it only goes so far and the messenger becomes important also especially for people who are not necessarily thinking rationally when it comes to politics and that can happen for a number of reasons it's not necessarily just that they're dumb although that's often the case but it's that maybe they work a lot and they don't have time to follow politics closely um, because yeah. they're poor and struggling to get by, which, of course, is by design in a capitalist system. You don't want the slaves figuring out how to overthrow their slave masters, you know. Um, and so, you know, I do have a lot of sympathy, especially because, as you and I think most listeners know, I come from a, a family and a background, ge sort of geographically speaking, that is you know, Trump country, basically, it's, uh, I have said many times that I essentially grew up in an 18 year long open air Trump rally. So I know how these people operate and, you know, what makes them tick, at least to a certain extent. Um, yeah, well, it also comes to the point you raised about why we were talking earlier about why people who are anti-vax, anti-COVID, mm. that it's a hoax, why they rushed to, rushed, rushed to the hospital. Right. 
and because the because it it gets to a deeper level it's the level of fear i'm going to die and yes. i'll do anything to avoid this it's a it's the fight or, or flight well they're not going to fight what are you going to fight you punch the virus so <laughs> right. they they'll shoot the hurricane like they did yeah, a couple of years ago yeah but yeah <laughs> trump nuke nuke the hurricane yeah exactly uh so they so they become frightened and they they go to the place that will they hope will save their lives mm. and it's the same thing with people hearing at a trump rally they're they're basically frightened they're they're afraid well there's one level where they've lost their status mm. but there's another level where you you cannot provide for your family right that that's a different level of concern right that's and a that level of tends real to fear. desperation too yeah you know? and that's the basis that you and i know of revolution right but it's not it's not uh you know it's a level of desperation where people said what look, there are no good alternatives. Right. right? Um, but yeah, so you were talking about the candidate, the character versus the message, right. the messenger versus the message. You want to have the combination, a message that resonates and a, and a character that resonates. But that so rarely happens because as we know, most politicians are in it for the absolute wrong reasons. Exactly. They, they may start off like Christian Sin Kirsten Cinema and say, yeah. You know, uh, here are my policies. I'm I'm a green person. Well, okay, that's not getting me anywhere. I need to move more center. Well, that's not getting me anywhere. I need to move more to the right. Yeah. Uh, and what ultimately comes down to is this essay I wrote with the title was the answer to all of your questions is money. Yeah. Right. Which is so often the case on every level. You know, top to bottom, from the most frightened level, if you had some money, you'd be better off. Yes, then that level of fright would change to a level of concern. That level of concern would change to, to a level of, of action, right? Or a level of even comfort, where you begin, you begin to move up. But often it's just based on money. Mm. Okay, you know, um, but this idea about merging character or messenger and message, the problem is that that is, as I said, we have people who too often go in into politics for the wrong reason. Right. And they can cover that wrong reason with a message that sounds good and sounds appealing. And so now we're talking about, well, how do the Democrats retain control of Congress? Well, their messaging is terrible, right? The Biden economy is the fastest growth in 30 years, or you know, whatever they're talking about. No, inflation is really high. It's eroding people's uh, gains in wages. Okay, this is the debate, right? But the whole system is flimsy, mm. as we've talked before. You know, for me, the answer isn't changing the message and, cha and change the messenger. The answer is forget the whole system. Right. I mean, it's so corrupt now. I don't know how. It's it's like. It's like mold, mold in your house. When you, by the time you notice it, you're already fucked. <laughs> right, or a termite, a termite infestation. A termite, or yeah. If yeah. you notice that, you're, it's already too late. Yeah. You know, they've already done extensive damage. The same thing with mold. It's everywhere in your home. You know, that little dot you're seeing up in the corner, <laughs> that, that's the tip of the iceberg. Or that little exactly. bit of damage you see. The termites have been going at your foundation for years. You're yeah, you're just lucky. Trouble. The roof hasn't fallen in on you. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. where we are. The roof right. hasn't fallen in. 
I agree completely. The but building then, is still standing. It's it, fragile. It's shaky. It's yep. still standing. And we kept, we, we're not doing anything to change it. Right? No. It's not, it's not, it's not, I mean, the steps we want to take make sense. Let's just educate the people. Uh, let's try to get money out of politics. All that makes sense. But what led to the dumbing down of the American electorate, what led to the introduction of money into politics at such a gargantuan level are not problems we're solving because it's the system that is fucked up. Right. It's the whole system. Right. And that's, that's why Wallen's analysis uh, speaks so clearly to me, because I think he elaborates on what you're describing here in such convincing detail. And it's essentially, I mean, and even when you were using this metaphor of the mold and the termite infestation or whatever, to me, that is reflective of something we've talked about before, like the process of an antiodromia, right? Where suddenly something just all of a sudden with that, with few outward signs transforms into its opposite, or at least something very different from itself. And I think that that, that is a feature that characterizes either collapse or metamorphosis, right? It's, it's a feature of crisis where you can you're at a turning point either to complete collapse and decay and disintegration into something completely different, a pile of rubble or a metamorphosis or a, a sort of a positive transformation into um, something new. And, right, uh, right. you know, and so like the part of the issue is that the Democrats are, they try to have it both ways. And I think this is reflective of the fact as I think Thomas Frank has shown most convincingly in his book, Listen Liberal, um, from a couple of years ago, what, that the, the Democratic Party itself first transformed from a, a, something like a workers' party under FDR and the New Deal in the 1970s and beyond. Uh, so from like the 1930s to the 1970s, that's what it was. Then from the 1970s onward, it transformed into a, a party of the elites that is the sort of the vanguard of neoliberalism and, 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 and sort of has the rhetoric of supporting workers and their economic needs, et cetera. But in practice, their policy measures have actually harmed workers and harmed workers like in a devastating fashion, NAFTA being perhaps the prime example, right? And as Frank has said, you know, the Democrats under Bill Clinton did things that the Republicans under Ronald Reagan could only have dreamed of. And that's been the case, I think, all the way through Obama and into Biden. So the, the Democrats are in this terminal position of performative contradiction, right, where they say that they uh, support values you know, we have to stick to our values. That's been their messaging for a couple of years now, especially in the face of Trump. They say that they adhere to values that support workers, but every single fucking policy that they implement or that they don't implement through inaction and through omission, you know, and through false promises. Uh, the forgiveness of student loan debt, for example, by Biden campaigns, campaign, he campaigns on forgiving 50,000, then it drops to 10,000, then it drops to nothing. Everything that they do betrays their own purported values. And I think, as you say, it's untenable now because yep. people see through it 
especially people in my generation who have been, who have lived this. You know, I saw a meme just today, actually, that was like on the left side of the meme, it was a picture of a person and it said the 1920s, I've lost my home, my job, my family, I've lost everything. What do I do? 2020s, the person says, I never had a home, a job, a family. What do I do? You know, that's, that's the predicament or the situation. And I don't think Democrats like you said the Democrats will lose in 2020. I agree. I think they're also going to be absolutely fucking crushed in 2024. I think Biden is historically unpopular. Uh, Certainly Kamala Harris is. She's literally the least popular vice president since Gallup began polling about vice presidential popularity. She's less popular than Dick Cheney. You know, if that's possible, she pulled it off. So yeah, I mean, the pieces of the puzzle are moving um, towards this, I guess, sclerotic moment or whatever. Well, I, <clears throat> I want to say a couple of things about what you yeah, yeah. just commented on. <clears throat> First, we have so many problems within what you and I consider reality, that the idea that there's an alternative reality out there is just such a horrible distraction, <laughs> right? This, this whole this whole uh, faux reality that, that has been created on the far right is right. such a distraction for all of us that we can't really confront the nature of the problems that are as severe as you and I've been talking about. Right. Because it's we're like, distracted it, by the nonsense. Exactly. As if the real world wasn't bad enough, we yeah, also have to right. contend with these delusions. Yeah. yeah. That's first comment. The second comment is that I, I wouldn't trace the, the change in the Democratic Party tonight, the 70s. I would change it to the 80s. Yeah, the Democratic Party has been a major political party in the United States since the founding, right? When it was the Democratic Republican Party or the Republican Democratic Party, whatever the hell Jefferson called it. Uh, And it's been around a long time. But as a major political party, its nourishment comes through money. Until Reagan completely denuded the country of unions, the Democratic Party could survive on the contributions by unions. And it just so happened that what the Mm -hmm. unions wanted uh, were what the workers wanted and needed. Not to say that unions were in many ways corrupt, right? because as we know, money corrupts. Um, But when the unions collapsed, the Democrats had to look around for some sources and they went to the same Wall Street, big pharma, big oil, big gas, the same donors, the same kinds of people. Now they have their Hollywood leftist philanthropists. Right, but it's um, small. But it's, yeah, in comparison to what the Republicans have, it's incredibly small. Yeah. And corporations aren't stupid. So they would would be paying both both parties, maybe paying Republicans more, but both parties got a, you know, a shit ton of money. As Trump himself said, right? You know, he used to contribute to both parties. To, yeah, just as a bribe, essentially. Yeah, which is yeah, you want to play both sides against the middle, so right. that's what they did, which is smart. Uh, but the political parties operate on money; they need those resources, and so where are they going to look? They're going to look to the people who have the, those resources, and they're going to be the corporations, and on occasion, you know, Hollywood types. But but everybody is going to have a demand. Mm. I'm not putting this much money in unless I get something, right? This is the whole 
the whole lobbying, uh, corporate lobby world. You know, they're interchangeable with politicians. Okay, so this this is the issue, right? Is there a chance the Democratic Party can get back to its its pre-1980s roots? No. Without a union movement, no. Now, maybe, maybe that will be rejuvenated. Uh, but the problem is that we have within the Democratic Party now, the war between the progressives and the moderates. The moderates, that's just another word for, for corporate. Right. Corporate clients for the, for the clientology. Right. That's all, it's, that's all it is. So you've got the progressive movement. Is that strong enough to bring the party along? Mm. Uh, I think it isn't. Me neither. Certainly not right now. No. Bernie is on his way. You know, he's riding off into the sunset and I see nobody uh, who can take his place as a figurehead. Well, I can see some. Um, The fact that the Progressive Caucus, we talked about this last last encounter, I think the Progressive Caucus is nearing 100 members. Right. That's pretty good. Now, I don't know how many of them are dyed-in-the-wool progressives. That's the thing, uh, yeah. I, I just don't know. I don't know the composition. But it seems to me that they're, this leads us back to where we were the last encounter, which is that the, it's the youth of the country that, who, who are, in all polls, far more progressive than other generations. Right. That, that's the hope. Uh, whether that's a new party or reconstituted Democratic Party, I don't know. But you're right. There, there's an opportunity here. Right for something uh, either catastrophic or transformative. Right. Yeah. Uh, now I would like to think that the system itself is being undermined mm. by um, movements such as I don't know what they're called the, the folks who are pushing bills in state legislatures that require the state electoral college electors to vote for the person who wins the popular vote. Mm. Yeah. Now that would completely do away with this nonsense about uh, you know, who, who wins the popular vote and who wins electoral college. Yeah. It would neutralize or at least severely weaken the, that sort of, the elitism or whatever of the electoral college yeah, it, itself, it, you know, it, it abolishes it, it pretty much abolishes electoral college without abolishing the electoral college. It, right. It, it there still it, may be a numbers game to play there, but at least, you know, that the popular vote is going to line up with the elector count, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, now that uh, I want to abolish electoral college, you know, Same. altogether, but also I want to eliminate the way Congress currently functions. So, you know, I'm, I'm yeah, crazy. Let's abolish person. Congress too while we're at it. Yeah, we don't need Congress. Well, no. I, I think we need some form of representation, but that's, you know, I'm a direct deliberative Democrat. So I want citizens yeah. making rules. Anyway, citizens, assemblies, legislative juries, as you call them. Yeah, I want all that going on uh, at all levels. So, so I want to see, but that, you know, we come back to where we've been in earlier encounters. Uh, That's because the original document, the constitution has, is not establishing a democracy. No, it is aged poorly. Let's, uh, yeah, well, this this idea that, that you can create a system 
in the 18th century right. that's going to be able to address the problems of the 21st century is just ludicrous. I mean, this whole idea about originalists and textualists. Well, uh, people, it's laughable. People insane. Right. You have to uh, be really dim to subscribe to that kind well, of. Or, or you have to have some agenda that I don't, I don't recognize. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Machiavellian uh, type of thing. Yeah. So, but, you know, the answers <laughs> to all the answer to all of your questions is money. Yes, uh, I, I fear that that's the case. But anyway, it comes back to, you know, to the value system that this this country currently operates on. I mean, we pay lift service, and this is, was certainly true with the Martin Luther King holiday. Yeah, lift service we paid to this whole idea about uh, equality and the end of racism and all that. It's just it's just so phony and so empty. Uh, but I would it leads me to a. So we've been talking about this idea about anti-elitism uh, and who are the elites that you're against. Mm. I'm not against any, any, I'm not against elites per se. Tell me who the elites are and what kind of hierarchy they're operating in, what organi- what their organization looks like. Again, give me the evidence for the kinds of things that they build their elitism on. Right. But it, but it leads me in a different direction mm. because you mentioned canceling student debt. Yeah. Should there be elite institutions like the Ivy League? Uh, Should there be elite liberal arts colleges? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big question, right? And I, 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 I want to almost give two answers, I guess. One is like the sort of practical realist response and one is the idealist one. It's like, an ideal world, I would like to see elite institutions of all kinds sort of, I guess, expropriated, right? Like nationalized, made as accessible and democratic as possible. Um, You know, thinking of the fact that places like Columbia and Harvard are more like hedge funds with (laughs) some real estate, (laughs) you know, holdings than colleges or universities. And we've seen this play out in New York here with Columbia very viscerally with the um, Graduate Student Workers Union, you know, that's been organizing right, and agitating right. for years now. And they finally, just in the past couple of weeks after- Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, after 20 weeks of striking or something, they finally managed to coerce a contract and a, and a negotiation out of the Columbia administration. Which, um, by the way, just as a quick aside- yeah. Uh, it demonstrates that boycotts and strikes work for sure. If and we're you seeing have that solidarity. Other, yeah. We're seeing that in other industries. Yeah, I agree. And that's, I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause I do want to circle back to that general point after I respond to your question. Um, so on the one hand, it's like in the world as it is presently constituted where these elite so-called institutions do exist and they have these histories and legacies of elitism and generational wealth. I think on the one hand, there is there is a value that can be gleaned from them as places where wealth, power, and intellect and expertise are concentrated. In other words, for example, someone like myself sneaks into a place like this and is able to benefit from exposure to the very real um, sort of uh, positive aspects that it has 
those things that I just mentioned, mentioned the, the very real concentration of brain power um, and, and networking opportunities that can then be perhaps subverted or at least used uh, sort of against the very system that authorizes the existence of an institution like this in the first place. And, you know, we, as I mentioned with the worker strike, like I'm not alone uh, in that, in that realm. There are plenty of people that, especially graduate students who, you know, um, have jumped through the right hoops, but may not necessarily come from the, the privileged economic background. And they find themselves here and they find themselves embraced by what is actually their structural or institutional adversary, you know? And so there's a guerrilla warfare kind of taking place, I think. And there's value as a, as a locus or a site for change, as you just pointed out to show like, hey, here's a beacon of hope. There were people who came together and united in solidarity and, and actually did, you know, what the lessons, historical lessons of the labor movement shown can succeed. And it did succeed, at least to some significant extent. So yeah, I like I like that that these places are at least amenable to change um, in that fashion. But of course, at the same time, the legacy of elitism and oppression that many of these institutions have perpetuated into the present. And like, again, now to point back at Columbia, Columbia has been um, basically taking over um, Harlem, West Harlem for years, um, moving steadily uptown uh, with real estate purchase after real estate purchase. Mm. I think now Columbia is the largest landholder in Manhattan um, and they're just completely gentrifying uh, West Harlem. And so that's not good <laughs> right? right and we want to challenge that but it almost raises another question of like uh, the a micro level sort of reform or revolution would we want to try and work within the ivy league or within an institution like columbia to reform it and alter its trajectory so that it's not this hostile force against the working class or do we want to abolish do we want to sort of take it over and make it not private and, and democratize it in various ways that would completely alter um, its character. I don't know. I honestly don't know what the right answer is there. And I'm not sure if that completely answers your question. Maybe I have a follow-up or something well, to you're focus you're, on. But. Uh, you're thinking about it. You're thinking about it out loud. I like yeah. that. I like that. Um, I don't know that I have a lot to say, but then I feel like I have a lot to say about this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you yourself, like if people don't remember, you've gone to elite elite institutions, Harvard yeah. and Oxford. So you have personal experience as yeah, well. I, I, I am. My upbringing is the opposite of yours. Right. So so I was raised a blue blood. But both of us were raised outside of Pittsburgh. <laughs> But I was raised in, uh, you know, in a wealthy community, in a wealthy family, had all the privileges of, of wealth, went to private universities. 
Is Oxford private? That's that's that's. I'm not sure if Oxford is private. It's it, now it's private. It has to be um, right. At any rate, well, it's, you know they uh, get they have about they as have, elite as it comes. <laughs> yeah, it's highly elite. Great, um, but I think like you, I'm not sure. You can correct this. Mm. I didn't go there because it was Oxford. Right. I went there because it was one of two places in that I could find in the English speaking world that would allow me to do just what I wanted to do as a doctoral student. Mm. And I had, I had demands. <laughs> my, <laughs> right. my demands were no classes, no exams, no foreign language. Let me come and write a book. Right. And, Under your uh, auspices, basically. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. you guide me and help me write this book, but otherwise leave me alone. And that's exactly <laughs> what Oxford did. And it was perfect. Yeah. So I wasn't nice. going because it was Oxford. Um, but when I applied to for my master's degree, it was only to private universities, the University of Chicago, Stanford, and Harvard. Those are the three mm -hmm. I applied to. And I have a love relationship with these universities because very much like you, I recognize that they are a center of, of higher learning. And the people there are there because they are reputationally the best at what they do. That's why they're there. That's right. why they're at Columbia or Harvard or Cornell or wherever it's going to be. But why is that the case? So the advantage you have over me is that you have experienced to strong in strong degree, both public and private universities. Right. Can you compare your educational experience at ASU mm. with your educational experience at Columbia? Comparing them in the sense of you can see that one is clearly elevated over the other. Mm. Now, it might be unfair because you are a doctoral student at Columbia, although you were also pretty much considered yeah. a doctoral student at ASU. Can you, was, yeah. can you compare the educational experiences of the two places? Mm. Can you can, not compare? Can you evaluate them? What's your evaluation of those two experiences? Would you say would you say? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, I think it might be in some ways similar. Like I'm thinking here of like the level of instruction, for example. And I think that is similar or there are close connections between that and the level of the cohorts of students, right? So in other words, like at ASU, um, there were maybe fewer of what I might think of as exceptional um, professors. And then by the same token, there were fewer exceptional students. Doesn't mean that there were none of either of those things. Right. But I think there is a point at which a difference of degree becomes a different of difference of kind when you sort of elevate to a place in the Ivy League where almost every faculty member or every student we might think of as being exceptional. And from that point of view, it's like I could, in theory, get much the same education, uh, sort of like how you went to Oxford and were just an independent student, basically. It's like you could go to a library and get the same quality of education, perhaps. But that doesn't change the ethos or the gestalt of the institution. And there are very, and part of this is also affected by the fact that Columbia is in Manhattan, in the center of the universe, so to speak, right? 
where yeah. the world around and the immediate environs of Colombia is just planetarily unique, <laughs> um, as opposed to Tempe, Arizona, which is a fucking, you know, desert. Well, I was going <laughs> to say it's in the desert. So that yeah. just tells you something. Exactly. So, um, yeah, from that point of view, the sea you're swimming in, I guess, to start mixing too many metaphors is very different as well. And so I would say, yeah, the the level of the quality of education at, at Columbia that I've experienced, even attempting to hold for all those other variables, like the fact that I'm, I've only been a doctoral student here, whereas I had been an undergrad and a master's student at ASU, I still think there there's without question a, a bit of a bright line between them um quality quality wise forgetting about wealth if we can yeah or separating that yeah. out you know yeah. because that that yeah what you mean wealth of the student body or wealth everything of the, of the institution and the student body you know whatever opportunities and that the wealth may have allowed for students to become more knowledgeable or more educated or better students or whatever. Nevertheless, they are that by and large. And it changes the character of the place, I think. Yeah. Now, would you say you have had some interaction with Columbia undergraduates? Yes. Yeah. Would you say that the Barrett Honors College at ASU captures that level of, <clears throat> of uh, excellent student Mm. Other, do you have within within ASU one of the largest public universities in the country, an enclave that can echo the excellence that you would find at the in the Ivy League? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I th I think on the one hand, I don't have enough sort of data or information or experience to make a firm take a firm position on that. You were, um, but you were a Barrett student. I was a, I was a student and a graduate so, of Barrett. So I have so you that took, point of view, but you, and you took, and I took Barrett uh, courses, courses that were only for Barrett students. Exactly. But so, I also, you know, that was 15 years ago and I was a very different person perhaps. And my memory has also faded in some ways. And at the same time, I don't have as much experience, certainly in the classroom of undergrads here at Columbia. Although hopefully with any luck, I've just applied for a position to teach right. undergrads at Columbia next year. So I'll have a greater window into that hopefully soon. Um, but I would say based on my limited experience, I would say that without question, Barrett is sort of of a higher caliber than ASU writ large. And some significant portion of the students there would fit in with ease at a place, a place like Columbia, and perhaps someone like myself who was recruited to Barrett on the, the bare fact that I had been a National Merit Scholar. I never even applied to ASU. They sent me a letter and said, hey, come here, we'll give you a full ride. And on top of that, we'll give you a stipend as an undergrad. And I thought, okay, that's, yeah, it's 2,000 2, miles away from hell where I grew up, and they want to pay me. I'm in. Yes, you um, went from you went from a psychological hell to a physical hell. Exactly. You went from a place that was yeah, incredibly <laughs> yeah. hot. <laughs> exactly. So I'm roasting in the in the pits of hell in in Tempe, but not the psychological torture, you know, of 
of rural Western of an, Pennsylvania. Of an open, yeah, of an open Trump rally, <laughs> exactly. as you phrase it. Exactly. So at any rate, uh, I could just have easily, at least in theory, applied to and, and gone to Columbia or Harvard or Penn if, if that criterion of national merit uh, you know, means anything to them. And I think it does. Right. So, yeah, I think, I think the project or uh, the goal of Barrett is admirable. I think they're succeeding to a significant extent, but I don't think they're the Harvard of the West or the Columbia College of the West. And I don't know that they ever could be just by the nature of these places, histories, the Ivy League histories and the concentration of wealth and power in places like New York City. So yeah. I don't know if that answers yeah. your question. That's my, that's uh, my take. Well, it gives me uh, gives me <clears throat> some anchoring. Um, the reputation of a place like Columbia, <clears throat> excuse me, rests on seems to me the the uh, eminence of the faculty. Mm. Now the the resources, of course, contribute to that. So I don't think, for example, that the University of Texas at Austin can rival Columbia or Yale in the reputation of its academic reputation. I think right. it's considered a very good public university. And it clearly has the resources that a place like Yale would have. I'm not sure what the endowment is, but I think it's got pretty, pretty close resources. Uh, and yet it isn't as preeminent. And I think that's because of the nature of the faculty. Mm. Faculty members want, want their hard work to be rewarded, not just financially, but also reputationally. And that means you go to a place like the Ivy League or Chicago or University of Chicago or Stanford over a place like UCLA or even the University of Michigan. Right. Which might be the finest public university in the country. Berkeley, maybe. That's Berkeley, yeah, only, Berkeley. Yeah. You know, UC Berkeley might be up there. And maybe that's a place that would have the, the same allure as Stanford or uh, Penn. Or right. Columbia. But it's notable that it's the outlier, right? It's the exception. It's, it's like the there's outlier, only one yeah. Berkeley, basically. Yeah. You know? A friend of mine went to uh, Stanford. And he said that when Stanford played the University of California at Berkeley in football, the Stanford students would chant uh, just like you to the Berkeley students, just like you, we got into Berkeley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's um, pretty good. But that's a perfect encapsulation of the elitism and snobbery involved right exactly you berkeley students yeah we could have gone to berkeley but you couldn't have gone to stanford because right. if you had gotten into stanford you wouldn't have gone to berkeley right you right? would have you, gone to stanford you would have gone to stanford yeah so there's that so the snobbery rests on this level of elitism that i think rests on the nature of the faculty mm -hmm. um but what's curious about that is if you look at the composition of the faculty at Arizona State in the political science department, well, what's now called the School of Politics and Global Studies, mm. I think you would find most of the faculty come from places uh, like 
Harvard and Michigan and Stanford. Very much places similar to what you would find at Columbia, probably. But I bet you the ratio of those who have gone to the Ivy League or elite private universities is far greater at Columbia than than it is at ASU. Mm -hmm. Among the faculty, you mean Um, people that have their PhDs from elite institutions? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's incestuous, right? Incredibly incestuous. I I think I told you, told you this story. When I was on the faculty at ASU, we interviewed, we were interviewing for a new assistant professor, which would be for those who don't know, the assistant professor rank is the introductory rank within the tenured faculty ladder. So you start as an assistant, and then if you get tenure, you move up to associate, and then you become promoted to full professor. Right. Uh, So we were interviewing somebody uh, for an American politics position, and a young woman came out from Stanford, gave her talk, what's called in the profession a job talk, where they present their research to a gathering of faculty and usually graduate students. This young woman's uh, talk was just awful. And she was uh, just raked over the coals by the faculty. I mean, they weren't, they weren't mean to her. They were just pointing out errors in her research and weaknesses and problems. She, she then goes off. She, so she's on a junket to various places around the country interviewing. She then goes off to Dartmouth. Mm-hmm. Dartmouth, also for those of you who don't know, is the only college in the Ivy League. Every other place is a university. That isn't to say that Dartmouth isn't a university, but it calls itself Dartmouth College and and sticks by that. Anyway, (laughs) she goes off to Dartmouth and gets hired. So a friend of mine on the ASU faculty was a friend of somebody on Dartmouth's faculty, and he calls him up and he says, what what the fuck happened? Was her talk really good? He said, oh, God, no, it was awful. Her research is ridiculous. And my friend at ASU said, well, then why did you hire her? And he said, oh, she went to Stanford. She's educable. Oh, Jesus. Right? Yep. right. Meaning she can learn. Right. But because she had gone to Stanford, she got not just got her foot in the door. She got hired because she went to Stanford with yes. the thought, well, if she went there, she she can be educated. So that's this that's this incestuous view that it doesn't matter if your work is shit. If you have the right pedigree, <laughs> you have a very good chance of moving within that circle. Exactly. And it's, yeah, I mean, there's so many things to be said about that. I mean, it's just reflective of the, the elite tendency to fail upwards um, in general, right? So it's, and it's like, once you get your foot in the door, or if you're born into a family that already has its foot in the door, or is firmly located within the house, <laughs> you know, then it's like, you just take one, one, every step forward on your journey is from one elite position to a, to the next, Precisely, I think for the for the reasons you just pointed out, that there's like this in-group sort of selection bias. Oh, they're one of us. You know, they can they yeah. can be reached, they yeah. can be changed, or they can fit in. You know, yeah. Um, and at some point, you you want you want to know when that stops. Is there any level at which that stops? My impression if, is that there isn't. <laughs> well, that, right, because I was just going to say we go back to our conversation about politics. People aren't being selected because of 
the history of the work they've done and the message based on that history that they're delivering. No, right. it's because that they can fundraise. Right? It's the amount of money they have. This is the whole thing. I'm now watching, reading in the Arizona Republic, the local paper, mm. about what's happening in the races for governor here in the state. And it's all about the war chest. Right, of course. Who raised the most money in the, fir- in the first quarter of the year? And what are you, what are you, why aren't you talking about what they're saying, what their policies are? Because uh, so, they know so, ultimately it doesn't matter, right? That's at what, least that's, in the system sure. that's presently constituted. So that, that's what I'm saying. So where, at what point, at what level, and in what area mm. does the quality of what, you're, what you've done and what you're doing matter the most? I, I used yeah. to think, I used to think it was at the at the university that you don't get hired if your work is shit. But apparently that's not true. But mm. the good news is you don't get hired. You didn't get hired at ASU if your work was shit because they didn't care where you were from. Right. Because they're willing to hire people from. Uh, one of my colleagues went to the University of uh, went to Texas A and M. Okay, would that person get hired at Harvard? I I, I think it would be doubtful. Right. Now, maybe maybe with a stellar publishing record, you would be. But uh, and I, I, I like to imagine that you would be, that they recognize talent. The one thing a university can do is recognize talent. But I'm not sure that's true. No, I don't. I think, I think it would be not so much what you published, but where you published it. <laughs> right. 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 What, what sure university press... Yeah. Yeah. What university press, what top journal. And if, if your work is really good, but it's not there, it must not be that good. And therefore you don't come here. Exactly. It's interesting. So it's like what you're pointing out. One of the things you're pointing out, I think, is that a place like ASU, a state school or something like that, that does not um, have the same institutional pressures, let's say, to um, be incestuous among what it considers to be peer institutions then uh, they're more free to actually enact something closer to what we might think of as a meritocracy, right? So somebody who happens to come out of uh, University of New Mexico with their PhD, but their research is very good and they, and they demonstrate that they're an excellent teacher and these types of things, ASU might hire them, whereas a, a less meritorious candidate coming out of Brown or whatever would be hired uh, you know, by a, a, another Ivy League institution yeah. over, over yeah. the person from University of New Mexico. Yeah. So yeah, that, that one that you had that one little, very dear, quaint <laughs> idea that if you're a, a good teacher, yeah, that never well, enters yeah. into it. That never, never, if you go to, to a community college to interview for a job, I think you're asked to teach a class mm. and you're observed teaching the class. That never happens at a research one institution ever. They don't give a shit what you can teach, how you teach. No, they don't care. That uh, I am this. This we'll have to save this for for another episode, and maybe it can be the lead in another episode. But I have come to a position now where I'm opposed to free college. Why? <laughs> well, I think it takes. I think it takes some conversation. Uh, but the the gist of it is that the country, 
as with almost every other message that the country delivers, has sold the people a bill of goods that consists of rotten fruit and rot- rotten food. Mm. So I'm, I'm anticipating you here, and I want to see if I'm anticipating you correctly before you tell me. Are you going to suggest that higher education as it currently exists in this country is more miseducative than it is educative or more harmful than it is beneficial. And therefore we shouldn't want people going there, even if it is free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's my intuition uh, wh- whatever, in a lot of ways too. That's yes. why I say abolish public school. Fuck it. It's prison junior, you know? <laughs> well, I, so, so, I don't go quite that far. Hey, I'm I being think, hyperbolic, but right. Still. But I think I I think it can be because the, the problem is if you abolish public school, what are you going to get? You're right. going to get what we see across the country: charter schools, whether well, they're public schools, um, you know, private schools, schools run for profit, with, right? Which allegedly allegedly have themes: homeschooling, religious <laughs> schools. I mean, it's it'd be it'd be a shit show. I agree. So, so I think. Public schools need to be transformed. You and I talked about that. But right now they serve as like, you know, sites of mass shootings primarily. Like, you know, like that's the reality. That's right. Yeah, it's a a target range for psychopaths. Yeah, target rich Uh, environment, they say. Yeah. um, I just think it's by saying we're going to provide free college. It sends the wrong message because the message now is that you need four years of college to get a good job. We have now distilled the value of education down to what kind of job you can get. Right. Vocational training and credentialization. Yes, but it's not vocational training. Right. If it were vocational training, it would be better. And I'm, I'm all for paying that. Yeah. You mean real like bricklaying or plumbing or I mean, apprenticeships, I mean, serious three-year apprenticeships paid for by the state. Okay. I'm I'm, okay. But this idea about free college just perpetuates this view that the point of going to college is to get a job. When I just read this statistic, 41% of college graduates, I don't remember how many years it goes back are working now at 41% are working at jobs that don't require four years. <laughs> right. College, I mean, the, but, but anyway, that, but that feeds into the, the, the economic message and avoids the message that you talked about, the miseducation of people, which is exactly what's going on in college. Mm. This idea, I can't remember which school it was, now wants to focus most of its resources on turning it into a STEM university. This is, this is craziness to me. I know. But, I could see it if you had, if you transformed K through 12 in a serious way that focused on uh, the important skills necessary to be a functioning human being, then I think you could avoid any talk about going to college except for people who really wanted to pursue intellectual studies. Right. In other words, if we revitalized public education and actually made it serve what we probably agree should be its purpose, which is, you know, it's completely state funded. It's a it's a it's an educative process that is meant to bring a person into full membership of society, economically, intellectually, et cetera. You know, that should be it shouldn't be the case that you need more than whatever we take public schooling to be. 
Right. Well, that Le- means Le- we add co- you know, college, quote unquote, into public schooling or whatever, extending public schooling, then, OK, maybe that's a conversation to be had, too. Yeah, I, I think it, I've changed yeah. my view on that one. Oh, okay. I used to think that it should be K through college. Mm. Um, and I think I could still I think I can still maintain that position. But but I'm I'm with you on this idea that. K through 12 is a way of providing the skills for people to be able to survive and even thrive within a social context. Right. Right. That they are citizens, fully functioning citizens who can think for themselves, can form an argument, can analyze a situation, can calculate to some degree. Right. That, that doesn't seem to be that onerous. We don't do it. We don't do it at all. I mean, we, we, ugh, that's a different, different story. But anyway, it's like this though. position where, where I think we have uh, misguided people and this whole notion about paying for college is just a sign of it. Yeah. I'm very, I'm sympathetic to uh, what you're saying. So I'm looking forward to hearing more and maybe thinking through that more with you on the next encounter. One thought that comes to mind that we might, or two things really. One, I'm also thinking in the context of, um, so I I mentioned I had applied to this position to teach at Columbia uh, for next year. And if I get the job, I would be teaching within what they call the core curriculum, which is a a great books curriculum that goes back a hundred years now. It was inaugurated, I think, in 1919, 1920. Um, and they, by, by John Dewey, wasn't it? Was uh, it Dewey? He was, he was instrumental, I think, but it wasn't his project completely. Or was, um, was it, uh, there was a guy named Van Doren, uh, Van Doren taught, taught at Columbia, but it wasn't, um, Erskine, I think was his name. John was it Mortimer Adler he came later. He right? was also Mortimer Adler was Van Doren's student, I think. Maybe okay, because I know that it was um, the founding of the University of Chicago was based upon the great books. Right. And it was, it was seeded by uh, Mortimer Adler and Mortimer others, Adler. I think. Yeah. The Rockefeller Foundation started the University of Chicago, as I remember it, but I can't remember the name of the guy who was been intellectually a bit of a hero of mine mm. i've forgotten his name i think it's erskine but maybe no, i wasn't wasn't erskine okay we may be um, well at any rate we can oh shit i can I'm try old. and google it while I'm i speak now. maybe but the yeah. point that the generalized point that i wanted to make was just that uh this curriculum was put into place whomever we're thinking of whose name we're both forgetting i believe his quote is something to the effect of that this, this curriculum is meant to deal with the persistent problems of the present. That's the quote. And so now that the core curriculum hit its 100-year mark last year or whatever, they were sort of re- and there was a committee that was formed to reimagine or, or re-envision you know, the, uh, the mission of the core curriculum in that context. So it's a great book, sort of classical education, but it's aimed at being, you know, present focused, present minded. How do we educate people in a way that helps them to cope with and improve the world that they actually exist in? So I just thought that was, that might be something that would be worth adding into the conversation from a curriculum perspective as well, right? Um, As an antidote, perhaps to this, this quasi vocationalized um, uh, approach to 
higher education that's been implemented in the past couple of decades. Yeah, I think it definitely is. And then I also wanted to mention something that I think is important to throw into this type of conversation, which is um, the point that Chomsky has made, which is that you cannot think about higher education in the United States, certainly in the past 20, 30 years, maybe more, without focusing on the financial aspect and the burden of indebtedness that it places on the students who by that fact are sort of um, transformed into consumers, right, of a product that they are paying for and that they are, as I say, indebted uh, to or for uh, in a way that operates as a, as a form of social control uh, on top of everything else. So not only are they maybe motivated to go to college for the wrong, for the wrong reasons and given uh, miseducation while they're there, but then on top of that, they're because of the price they have to pay. And, and that price is um, sort of placed squarely on their shoulders. And, you know, thanks to Joe Biden, uh, they can't even discharge that debt through bankruptcy anymore. Student loan debt can't be discharged through bankruptcy. Um, so now they are, they've got golden handcuffs or maybe, you know, copper handcuffs as the case may be, since as you just pointed out, almost half of college graduates work in jobs that don't require a college degree and probably don't pay commensurate with Certainly. what we would expect a college graduate to receive. So the system is, um, you know, Chomsky characterizes it as a form of debt peonage or debt enslavement. And I think that's right in a lot of ways, because oh. now you're trapped in it, you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm completely for forgiving all debt. Mm. All of it. Same, 100% because, debt because jubilee. It's a, it's a trap. Right. It has been a trap. The, what's Columbia's tuition now? Oh, God. I think it's the highest in the country, actually. And, and is it $60,000 a year? Higher? I'm sure, roughly. $70,000 yeah. a year? 60 for sure, yeah. I, I, I just don't see... Well, yes, I suppose if you have uh, real estate in Manhattan... Right. Uh, then you, that's you a rounding to, error for you. Yeah, you have <laughs> you to know? pay taxes and you've got to... Okay, it's going to be expensive, but I, I just think it's criminal. Yeah, I think what you charge students is is ridiculous, and the the uncontrolled growth in in bureaucracy at these universities is unconscionable. That's where most of the money's going. Sure, administrative bloat, presidential salaries. Yeah, but it's yeah the number of administer administrators you add on, you know, it's that's what's growing. And so if you look if you look at the ch a chart, the number of new lines for faculty right. versus the number of new hires in administration that's not even close no the administrators topple new faculty it's ridiculous anyway um yes to forgiving debt uh i just don't know how these these universities well i do know how these universities charge that amount of money they're like any other money center Right. You know, uh, it's no different. Yeah, it's a scam. Corporations. It's a scheme. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Anyway, we'll save we'll save more ranting. <laughs> yeah. uh, 
about uh, education for next time. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm thinking that the free college. I've said it in the most dramatic way that I oppose it. Right. But I I don't oppose it. Um, I'm I'm all for ameliorating the situation. But I think we have to rethink yeah, the whole educational system, K through college. Yeah, you're you're in support of free education, but you're opposed to free college it, in, in the sense that it presently exists. Well, yes, because in the context we're talking about it, it means that people are driven to go to college. And I think that's a complete mistake because yeah. it can, misunderstands what college is, is about, what higher education is for and what it's about, why it's necessary. Uh, as a, let me rephrase that what it's about and why it's attractive mm. because it isn't necessary or ought not to be necessary. Yeah, I agree. All right. All right. We'll end there. I'll see you next time. All right. I'll have to stop there. I'm going to go see if I can contract COVID. <laughs> okay.
Did you bullshit last week? No. Did you try to bullshit last week? Yes. <laughs> <laughs>